Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. Mim and Ellis here. We just wanted to do a quick announcement before the episode. We're starting a Patreon. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Ellis, what's a Patreon? Tell uh, us all about it. A Patreon uh, uh, Patreon's a website, and uh, what you can do is you can go to our specific website, um, and if you re- if you like our content, you can donate um, a- as much as you want, uh, anything from a dollar to I think twenty dollars, mm-hmm. um, just to kind of say that you support a podcast and you want to help us out in these really trying times. And if uh, anybody who signs up to be a patron will get some. Really cool bonus features. Uh, one thing that we want to do with with Feminism Ruins Everything, the feminist podcast, <laughs> is uh, make it accessible to as many people as possible. And we're also carrying that across to our patron uh, tiers. So no matter what tier you sign up for, you will get all of the bonus content that comes with uh, being a patron. And that includes um, outtakes, uh, bits that we think uh, didn't, you know, didn't quite fit in the episode, but we want people to listen to it anyway. They're uh, mostly embarrassing for us, really. <laughs> if you, like, if you want to hear the stuff that we cut out, being like, "Oh, that's embarrassing for us," <laughs> you get to hear them. You will get all of that, uh, and and we'll also be throwing up like little bonus features, um, like just extended conversations about the uh, whatever we're talking about. Uh, like today, we're about to record uh, an episode on Wicked. Just a little spoiler for for what's coming Wicked. up next, and. We're going to be doing our top five favorite songs from mm. it and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, and just kind of more general thoughts about it that don't pertain to, to feminism and the general conversation. But uh, the, the actual podcast, Feminism Ruins Everything, is going to be free and accessible to anyone who wants it all the time. We're not going to gate that off behind any paywalls or anything. The Patreon is just like a little extra stuff that people who want to help us out uh, get, you know, little behind-the-scenes things and hopefully uh, enjoy it and have as much fun listening to them as we had feelings foolish while making them <laughs> you'll also get to like see some of the cover art before we put it out so you'll know what episodes are coming out before anybody else does so you get to feel smug about that and our the, the one bonus that we're giving to our top tier patrons is that you'll be able to enter into the discussion with us about picking an episode like we want to hear what you guys want us to talk about and we're gonna we're gonna enter into a conversation and find like an episode that people want to listen to and and have a lot of fun that way. And you get the satisfaction of knowing that you came up with that yeah. idea. So if you'd like to support us on Patreon, um, which we're really hoping that you will, that would be really cool. You can go to patreon.com forward slash feminism ruins everything pod. You can also find the link via our Facebook and Instagram pages that we'll, we'll plaster all over there as well so that it's easy to, to find. So that if you'd like to support us financially as well as with your listenership, you can do so. But also if you just want to listen, like power to you. That's why we're making this. Yeah, we just we just want to put stuff out there and, and hopefully... Like we've gotten a lot of great response so far and we feel like we, we've started some co- cool conversations with people... Um, 
And and we're really excited to kind of keep doing this and share it with you. Absolutely. And now onto our episode on love actually. Enjoy. Feminism, 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 feminism ruins everything. It's a feminist podcast. Hi, welcome to Feminism Ruins Everything. My name is Millicent Saar. I'm Ella Stolen. And this is the feminist podcast where we take movies, musicals, and pop culture phenomena, give them a feminist critique, and potentially ruin them. Potentially. Potentially. Uh, we're we're kind of undecided. We're we're using going to use today's podcast to kind of figure out how we feel about our next topic, which is the film Love Actually. We're branching out. We haven't done something before. We haven't critiqued something that is just a movie. So that's what we're doing today. No musical in sight. But it does have a. Uh, a, a song as like a set piece so we're like easing our way into the film yeah, so there's still a musical number we're still in our comfort zone it's all okay one of the characters is a musician so yeah we're, we're easy this is our this is our like <laughs> dipping the toe into the pool of not musicals look out so this is an interesting piece because um there are so many narratives that cross over um richard curtis who who wrote it and i think directed it as well mm-hmm um, does this super cool thing where um, there are like nine distinct storylines and they're kind of intertwined and throughout the film you um, come to learn how each of them are connected, um, which I really love as a um, narrative device. Mm. And um, it's one of those things, because Love Actually is such a popular film, like my family watches it every Christmas. I don't know about you, Ellis, but... Yeah, we pretty religiously yeah but i've seen it so many times that i forget how interesting it is for the first time to watch and see all of the storylines like the web kind of show itself like i re re-watching it for this i didn't realize that you didn't learn that two characters were married until about an hour into the film and mm. that relationship plays a huge part in the throughout the rest of the film that it kind of like surprised me I didn't actually know that they were already married mm. until they the film yeah. revealed it except when you've seen it when you've seen it a billion like times 50 times yeah you, you already know so you forget these things <laughs> so because there are so many different storylines and so many different characters the way we're going to tackle this today is we're going to go through and like discuss every storyline talk about its individual feminist merits um, or lack thereof, as it were, and uh, then kind of talk about the film overall. But yeah, there are so many different interesting storylines that bring so many different things to the table. We want to look at them individually first. Mm. And and then we will ask, we will hopefully answer the question, is love actually all around? Oh no, that was horrendous. You knew what you were signing up for when you started a podcast with me, Mim. Oh, bad puns. <laughs> bad puns is what I signed up for. All right, so the first one we're going to chat about is the storyline between Hugh Grant, who plays the Prime Minister, and his assistant, Natalie. Uh, yeah, Ma- Ma- Martine McCutcheon is her name. We're going to do a lot of referring to them <laughs> by their their actors' names as opposed to their character names yeah. because even though we've we've seen this film a million times between us, we don't know their characters. I They're have, always just I have no idea 
what Emma Thompson's character's name is. Like, she, I couldn't tell she's you. She's just Emma Thompson. Yeah. And I think that, that's part of the appeal of the film, I think, is that they've got so many huge names in in this film that you can kind of, like, you've got so many actors that you're like, oh, I love that actor, I love this actor, I love that. So all the stories kind of had that mm. pull to it. Um, and it kind of, I think it, this is the film that inspired all of those those kind of films with like let's get as many actors in the same film as possible and they'll all tell these like branching stories yeah and none of them have been as successful as love actually i don't think i also think that's an interesting thing to talk about before we like dive into our discussion is the fact that this film is so popular Mm -hmm. and so well loved and um is like a christmas movie staple (laughs) um and I, I think part of it is what you're talking about with the fact that all of these characters are like such well-known and such well-loved mm. actors. Like you've got your Liam Neesons and your Emma Thompsons and your Alan Rickmans, bless him, may he rest in peace. Um, and like freaking Rowan Atkinson, is mm-hmm. Kira Knightley, you know? And um, I think that's definitely part of the appeal. But I also think that something that is lovely about it is the fact that some of the storylines have this beautiful romantic happy ending some of them have these like heartbreaking conclusions and so it's kind of this beautiful emotional roller coaster where in some regards um like the happy ending is fulfilled and that's really rewarding and in other parts it's really upsetting and heartbreaking but you don't have to dedicate yourself wholly to one or the other (laughs) it's like you get a little bit of everything yeah yeah um also it's just quotable as all heck yeah re-watching this movie i i quoted along with most of it uh, to, to the point where for whatever reason the subtitles weren't working um, in in the, the the version that I was watching, yet I still knew exactly what all the Portuguese <laughs> characters were saying. I'm like, okay, yeah, that that's the Dunkin' Donuts joke, and like, yeah. I've seen this movie a lot. Yeah. Um, let's talk about David and Natalie. Yes, Hugh Grant and Martin McCutcheon. So Hugh Grant is the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and oh, I wish that was the case now. Uh, oh, like honestly, would vote for him tomorrow. Hundred percent. I mean, not yeah. that I have any right to vote in the UK. <laughs> As a UK citizen, would vote for him tomorrow. Um, but so he's the prime minister, and it starts with his first day uh, in Ten Downing Street, and he meets all his staff. And Natalie is one of the staff, and very quickly they both realise that they have a rapport, that they have. Like there's an attraction. There's there are something, sparks. Exactly. And you essentially get to watch this relationship uh, blossom while also Hugh Grant is very much aware that he is the prime minister yeah. and, and, and needs to kind of like keep that in check. And he shouldn't have feelings for his staff. Exactly. Uh, and then there's a, there's a misunderstanding, uh, an, an incident with the American president when the American president comes to visit. Mm. Uh, he redistributes... Natalie, which uh, either means that he has her fired or just kind of like Like she works in another department now, which I hope is the case. I hope that's the case. That's that's the impression that I got when I last watched it. You shouldn't get fired because your boss has a crush on you. Yes, Um, but then of course he he realizes that no, he wants to be with Natalie, and then uh, goes up and down her street because he doesn't think to look up her address. <laughs> and, oh, uh, like, you're the freaking Prime Minister. You have access to that information. Staff records. 
but but then it's such a lovely scene seeing him go door to door and yes. like and you're the prime minister. <laughs> yeah. um, I think this is an interesting one from a feminist perspective because I do think that the Hugh Grant character um, does try to do the right thing by not being the creepy boss who is hitting on his staff. Mm. Like he is he is disappointed in himself and he's so frustrated by the situation that he is attracted to one of his staff. It's like, he like closes the door and he's like, oh, that's so inconvenient. <laughs> um, and like on one hand, I think that it's nice demonstrating that he isn't just kind of letting his sex drive or whatever be the one making the decision and mm. or like he's not abusing his power either being mm. like i'm the prime minister you have to sleep with me um so from that perspective i appreciate it but th- there is still that element of power imbalance regardless of how much he is uh utilizing it it still exists mm. she still works for him he's still the most powerful man in britain Mm. And you kind of have to take that into account. Um, yeah. E- even though he does do a lot of things to uh, to mitigate that fact, it still exists. There's also the, the aspect... That, so the, the American president comes across and um, harasses Natalie, mm. essentially. And that's kind of the, the moment that sparks him to, to action. And... It, it is a little off-putting that Natalie feels like she has to apologize for the American president's yeah. actions because mm-hmm. uh, she she does I think she sends uh, him a Christmas card and says I'm really sorry about what happened, um, and then again when they meet up face to face after he's knocked on all the doors she's again I'm really sorry about it and it's like well you didn't do anything wrong no, um, and it's it, it was kind of upsetting to that the blame was at least partially on her. Yeah. I also think there is some serious fat shaming in this story that... Oh, yeah. ...that I hate. Um, And, like, she's not fat. She's not... Like, she absolutely would fit into, like, the the standard, like, average body size Mm. of anyone. Like, regardless, like... Fat shaming isn't appropriate no matter what size you are. Um, but just the fact that there's so much commentary on, like, oh, would we call her chubby? Like, that crap. And, like, um, yes, we would, sir. Huge thighs. <laughs> like, that's not... It's not an appropriate way to discuss another human being. Mm. Um, and just, like, the commentary around that and the conversations that happen around that... Um, have not aged well. You could argue that it's... um, I I don't think Hugh Grant at any point kind of participates in it. Like, like he he says, like, would we call her chubby? In a kind of, like... I'm disagreeing with this. I'm disagreeing with this, but I have to be polite because I'm the Prime Minister. Uh, And I think part of of the supposed humour from those bits is Hugh Grant's perplexity of, like... I, I don't understand where this is coming from, what your how anybody could see that in her. So I wonder if that's kind of part of the joke that mm. she is a very um average sized human 
that everybody's like overreacting and it's only the prime minister who's like you guys have no idea what you're talking about. Mm. Are we looking at the same person? But you you are right. I don't think it's aged particularly yeah. well. And also, it's kind of like what we were talking about with Jan in Greece mm-hmm. being this, like, tiny woman um, who has all these, like, fat jokes about her. Um, like, somebody who is that size or bigger looking at that and seeing that this character, who is a really average-sized woman, mm-hmm. has these, like... Um, fat phobic jokes or like commentary directed towards her like what does that do for the body image of people watching that Mm -hmm. like that said even though uh, we we do have these criticisms about the story it's actually a really well told segment of the Mm. film it's so like both the characters are really sweet and their relationship is really believable and it it, I I think it's quite compelling yeah. To to watch their relationship blossom and them try to navigate how it could work. Yeah, and there's also that element of the fact that um, there's a big like class difference as mm. well. Like he's the prime minister and she's from the dodgy end of Wandsworth. <laughs> um, not that I know where that is, um, but there's kind of this um, underlying. Uh, idea that it's like a lower socioeconomic mm. area, you know. Um, and so I guess that's another element to it as well, um, that it's nice to see that they have this connection and that they can find a relationship regardless of the fact that they're from quite different worlds. Yeah. And also, Ellis and I have done this thing. Um, we won't, like, talk you through it. We might, like, put it on our Instagram or something, where we've gone through and, like, rated which our favourite storylines are from, like, one to nine, and then rated them from a feminist perspective as well, and they're very different. Very different lists. <laughs> um, but for both you and I, this was our favourite storyline. Yes. It's so wholesome. It's so nice. And, like, I'm, I don't consider myself, a like, a patriotic person, but when Hugh Grant gives that speech about how great Britain is and all the things that we've contributed, <laughs> I'm just, like, makes... Like, it's a really uplifting moment, and then and then you remember that colonialism is a thing, and, and it yeah. all comes crashing down. Uh, so it's just there's a lot of good in in that story, I think. Yeah, and there are like a few problematic problematic elements, um, but I do think that the characters, like the two main characters themselves, um, aren't particularly at fault in any of those regards. Uh, Moving on to a story where people are at fault. (laughs) Uh, Second on our list is the storyline between Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman, and Heike uh, McCatch, I believe that's how it's pronounced. Uh, This is um, The Affair. Um, Couldn't tell you what any of those characters names are. Uh, Mia is Mia the assistant. Mia is the assistant. Uh, again, only because they say that name a lot. Like, oh, Mia's very pretty. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, to, if anyone's unfamiliar with Love Actually, essentially what happens here is that Emma Thompson's character and Alan Rickman's character are a married couple. Um, Alan Rickman is the boss at this in this workplace office. Um, and Mia is his assistant who um, makes some pretty forward advances towards him. Incredibly forward advances. Like, 
Oh, damn. Like, girl knows what she wants. There's no question. <laughs> um, and then he ends up having an affair with her. Um, Emma Thompson finds out. Um, and it's kind of dubious at the end that like, you're not really mm-hmm. sure. It's a bit unclear whether or not they stay together or... They're, so... So they they have they have kids and I think that's the the thing that makes it even more complicated. Um, it, at the final scene where all the characters are meeting up at Heathrow mm. Airport arrivals, um, Emma Thompson is there with the kids and they seem really amicable. Mm. Like it's it doesn't seem like everything's fixed. It doesn't necessarily feel like they have completely broken up and it's irreparable. Yeah. But it's left unclear. Yeah, I think there's still a little bit of tension. That's part of the story's benefit, I think. There yeah. is a lot of uncertainty throughout it. Um, like, you never know exactly what uh, form the affair took. Yeah. Like, a- Emma Thompson uh, put it best. Like, you never know if it's, like, just a necklace or if it's sex and a necklace or if it's sex, uh, love and a necklace yeah and you never find out exactly what it is but it's clear that something has happened yeah there's like that one scene where um mia is wearing the necklace and like her bed is messed up in the background and Mm. it's like all right i'm gonna i'm gonna connect (laughs) the dots here i think the the issue that i have with this storyline is not necessarily what happens in the movie itself but kind of more the commentary around it from people who are fans of the film um like my big issue that i take with it is that i think that mia the assistant is the person who is very much um, made out to be the villain in the story um when in actual fact like the majority of the fault i think is on Alan Rickman's character. Mm-hmm. He he is married and he engages in an affair. Yeah. And you, you could argue that Mia has a moral responsibility to not pursue a married man, but when you kind of break it down, she she isn't the one who is at fault because yeah. she isn't married. Well, I mean, we assume she's not. <laughs> we, we assume. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, she's not the one who is like engaging in the infidelity it's mm-hmm. it's him and um like he very much has the choice to go along with her advances and to kind of um yeah play along with the kind of flirtatious games that she is playing um and i think that you know, we all hear like, oh my God, I hate that character. Oh. Um, like I'm myself included. <laughs> like I've absolutely been one of the people being like, ah, oh, the freaking assistant trying to break up Emma Thompson's marriage. Um, but yeah, I think she is played out to be such a villain. And I think that almost excuses him a little bit. And some of the blame is taken off of him. Whereas mm-hmm. I think the majority of it should fall on him. Uh, yes. Very, very much so. Especially because um, we, we are shown uh, scenes from his life with Emma Thompson, and it doesn't—they don't have a bad marriage. They get along really well. Mm. Um, it might not be as 
exciting yeah. as a potential relationship with Mia. Um, but it, it, it establishes that it is like a, a very reasonable, ordinary marriage, which kind of makes uh, his infidelity even more um, perplexing because it's not like he's coming from a bad marriage and trying to use it to escape the, the terrible situation that mm. he's in. He's um, he, he's throwing away something that's really yeah. quite nice and lovely. You're married to Emma Thompson, dude. I think that's where a lot of the hate comes from. <laughs> not not the fact that it happened, it's that it happened to Emma Thompson. Unacceptable. And the like the scene where she's discovered that the oh. affair's taking place and she puts on the Joni Mitchell mm. and just cries is like that's the <sighs> arguably the best scene in the film mm-hmm. and the most heartbreaking. It's, oh and then, then when she she takes a moment to stop herself crying and then comes back into the room and tries to act like nothing yeah. has happened and, and like put on a brave face for her kids oh it's oh. so it's a masterclass in acting she's she's brilliant she's incredible and and alan rickman is incredible as well mm-hmm. because he's alan rickman mm-hmm. um and like i i really did i enjoyed the aspects of his performance where you could tell that he was hesitant hesitant about pursuing Mia and kind of like seeing that struggle of like should I do this shouldn't I uh, I thought he portrayed that really well um, which makes it a really compelling narrative mm. to watch yeah the next little segment that we're going to talk about is the um, the relationship between Colin Firth and Lucia Moniz is that what her I, name is I believe is? that is um, what are the characters' names? Uh, well, his name is Colin Firth, <laughs> and uh, her name's uh, Aurelia. Aurelia, yeah. What is Colin Firth's character's name? It's not David, is it? No, no that's, that's the, the prime, prime minister. minister. I like. I would estimate I've seen this movie conservatively, like. Jamie. 50 times. Jamie. I hate Uncle Jamie. Jamie. Of course, of course. Classic. So between Jamie and Aurelia. So this story is about uh, Colin Firth discovers that his uh, girlfriend has been cheating on him with his brother. And so he goes, I think, to the the, the south of France Mm. where... The family cottage. The family cottage. Oh, very successful cottage. He's Colin Firth. Of course he has a family cottage in France. (laughs) Uh, And... uh, he he's trying to write a novel, and he uh, employs a new housekeeper who speaks who is Portuguese, doesn't speak English, mm. and it is, it is essentially their relationship trying to communicate with each other without knowing the other one's language. Yeah. Uh, at some point, she leaves, and he returns to England, but then decides, no, actually, I want to learn Portuguese mm. and go to her and propose. In in. One of, the, one of the many climaxes that this film has, <laughs> um, where it, it turns out that she's been learning English so that she yeah. can do the same to him. Do, 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 do. <laughs> like the, the dramatic theme music that plays the whole time. And like the whole city's like marching down the of street course. going, our father's selling this Aurelia to this white man. Naturally. <laughs> I think on one hand, I kind of get what this storyline is going for. Um, I think Richard Curtis is trying to be like super romantic, being like, you can fall in love with somebody and have a connection with someone even if you don't speak the same language. Mm. Um, which I suppose is a nice sentiment. 
Um, but on the other hand, I'm sitting there going, you've never actually had a conversation with this woman and you want her to be your wife. Like, you... I appreciate that there's a level of, like, you can have a level of, like, intimacy with somebody and, like, have a connection with someone that um, is beyond anything that you can convey linguistically mm-hmm. but at the same time you don't know her at all <laughs> you you never talk to her there's, yeah there's there's a big gap between them miming genres of books to each other yeah yeah uh, to let's spend the rest of our life together yeah but i think i think the thing that makes this story effective uh, are the two performances like mm. i think they they work both actors work really well together and they sell it and in amongst all the other ridiculous romance it, I felt like it's a a believable place for that story to go mm. in the sense of they both make big grand life changing gestures for each other Yeah, uh, it's, it's never a one sided relationship yeah. and I guess also um, it's it's written really well in that to begin with, with the language barrier, he's saying something in English and she's saying something in Portuguese and they're like stark opposites. And the more you see their relationship progress, it's more like they're, they're saying the same thing in their own languages. So you kind of see that closeness developing um, by way of like the subtitles almost. <laughs> um, but I think also at the same time, kind of similarly to the Hugh Grant storyline, um, there is a bit of a power imbalance as well in the fact that he, he his family has this cabin in the, <laughs> the south of France. He is her employer. Yeah, yeah. and she's she's the housekeeper. Like, uh, yeah, that's a little bit up in the air for me. Yeah, it's it's it, it toes the line. Um, for me, it kind of falls on the fact that it 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 it's sold really well and it it falls on the, the slightly more sweet side of things, mm. I would say. And I, I do think that with romantic comedies, you kind of need to give it the benefit of the doubt. Like, so much of this, you have to suspend your disbelief yeah. to be like, oh, that wouldn't actually happen. But it's it's almost like a little bit of, like, magical realism. Not magical realism, but, like, it's, it's yeah. hyper-realistic and um, there's an element of fantasy almost yeah yeah you you, you kind of have to go with the flow like and yes they they would have both gone and learnt one another's language independently and decided to get married after spending like some weeks together not speaking one another's language yeah like <laughs> if you if you go into it too much you're like this is not real is there the next story though is quite Realistic, mm. uh, and that's the storyline between Liam Neeson and what's his name, uh, Thomas Sangster, uh, who, uh, you know, was was for a long time the kid from Love Actually, mm. and is now that guy from Game of Thrones, I think. So, um, so their storyline is um, Liam Neeson is uh, Sam is the kid's name. Mm. Uh, he's Sam's stepfather, and uh, his wife. And Sam's mother has just died. Mm. And it's them trying to figure out how to grieve together. Um, But also Sam is in love with one of his classmates. Uh, Sam's like 11 years old and uh, is completely in love with this girl, Joanna. 
and so it's them trying to figure out how Sam can express his love for his classmate. Yeah. And it's re- but it's really about the father and son relationship yeah. and and them growing together. Yeah, and I think it also is is nice to have represented like that kind of mixed family dynamic in that like he's not biologically his father, but he has this really paternal relationship with mm-hmm. Sam and I think you see that grow throughout their storyline and it's it's really lovely. You you do you do get that um in the sense of at the beginning of the film Sam is referring to Liam Neeson by his character's name, uh, which is, of which course, is Liam, Liam Neeson. Neeson. <laughs> uh, but by the end of the film, he's just calling him Dad. Oh, I actually never picked that up. Yeah. It's That's a, really sweet. Really, just really subtle. Um, I think it's just a really quick, like, let's go, Dad. Like, it's really, really small, but Aww. there is that, that growth as well as, the, as they both kind of grow together. Bless. I think the biggest thing that I get out of this section and the reason that i would rate this as probably the one of the more feminist um storylines is the really beautiful display of positive masculinity between both of these characters um like the fact that um they're obviously grieving really hard both of them Mm -hmm. and you see Liam Neeson's character like reaching out for support from his friends like Emma Thompson mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the character Emma Thompson and um, you also um, like see him break down into tears it's so heartbreaking um, and the fact that he knows that Sam is struggling and like actively does his best to reach out to him and be like hey like I, I know that there's something bothering you and I know obviously your mum's died but can, can we talk about it? Because I'm worried about you. Like, it's a really beautiful um, display of two, I was going to say two men, but two male characters mm. um, being really expressive and emotive and feeling the capacity and feeling safe with one another to be able to share how they're feeling. Mm. And, and also the, the way that they express that. Like they spend so much of the movie talking about love and being in love and mm. and that kind of thing like it's never it's never dismissed as as anything other than the the real emotion that they're feeling and they watch titanic together Aww. and they they're constantly referring to like love stories and things. so they they're very much like they're like the opposite of toxic masculinity yeah right? yeah it's I, lovely i love it so much and like Sam running through the airport at the end to to like confess to Joanna she's about to fly away it's like which when you're watching in 2020 you're like this child would be arrested he would have terrorist convictions against his name like (laughs) oh my god and and they just kind of like bring him back and release him like that's not what would happen no no (laughs) no like he would be in interrogation for hours yeah oh gosh but it's it's such a wholesome story about a father and son, and it's really nice. Uh, it, it, it's nice that in this film about love, it's not just romantic love yeah. that they're discussing. It's yeah. it's familial love and 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 all sorts of that. Yeah, uh, all all sorts of those aspects. Yeah, and at the end of that storyline, um, you know when he like gets to see Joanna and like confess his love. Um, 
you don't even necessarily you don't really even see that play out like you mm. see him being like oh you, you know my name and she's like yeah of course I do and you don't really see how that finishes other than the fact that she runs back through the entire yeah. terminal <laughs> to like kiss him on the cheek you know um but I think the more satisfying conclusion of that storyline is the fact that then there's that father and son moment of them like celebrating yeah. together um which I think, yeah, it's really obvious that that's the real love story there. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the paternal love rather than the romantic love. Yeah, but a really another nice point um, that kind of ties into the queer representation or lack thereof in this film is the fact that um, when Sam tells Liam Neeson <laughs> that he is in love with somebody. He goes like, um, oh, is she or he um, somebody you go to school with? I can't mm. remember how that sentence finishes. But, but, but Liam Neeson um, doesn't make assumptions and also demonstrates uh, very simply but clearly that it's like, it doesn't matter what your sexual preference is. Mm. Uh, I'm here to support you and, and help you through that. And it's a really lovely moment of him reaching out in a way, which again, in, in what, 2003, 2004, when the movie came out, like representation wasn't as big. Mm. And it w- it's, the film makes a couple of gestures uh, in that way um, of, of a character reaching out to another one, just saying, look, just so you know that if, uh, if you are queer or, or anything like that, you can talk to me about mm. it and I'm, I'm here to support you. But then the film doesn't include any sort of yeah, queer relationship. Like it's heteronormative as all heck. Everything is. But but it's also odd in a in a film where it contains the the familial relationship between father and son, and there's like a a love story about two best friends kind of realizing that they are best friends essentially. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's a story about somebody who just wants to go get laid. Like it covers so many different kinds of love. Mm yet completely excludes... Queer love. Yeah. 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 It was kind of like... And I guess it is a product of its time in that it was okay to, like, talk about it. Like, oh, if you're gay, it's all right. But it, Richard Curtis and the team behind it weren't ready to put a queer mm-hmm. couple on the screen. Um, which is disappointing. It is. It's very disappointing. What isn't disappointing, and this is really nerdy of me to to bring up, but in this in the the all I want for Christmas is you music scene where Sam is playing the drums. At one point, he holds his finger up to to Liam Neeson in the audience, and the drum track uh, reflects what he would <gasps> yes! have been playing. Yeah. Like one of the drums cuts out yeah. while he's holding his finger up. And they did not need to do that. Nobody but like hardcore musos mm. would have noticed. But I really appreciate yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Also, <laughs> I'm like, yes, that is accurate. You can only play one drum right now <laughs> with your hands. Like you probably got your kick drum still happening. But He's going. yeah, he picks up drums really quickly as well. He he learns it in about two weeks. Yeah, like, that's got rhythm. Well done. Yeah, well done. no mean feat. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The next storyline we're going to talk about is the one with, I'm going to say their names are Juliet and Peter. And their friend... Mark? Mark. And their friend, the guy from that zombie Juliet, Peter, and Mark. Oh my god, look at you go. Uh, So Juliet is played by Kira Knightley. Peter is played by uh, Chiwetel Ijefor. And Mark is played by Andrew Lincoln. All three of whom, I think, got big around or after Mm. the time of this film. Yeah, this was like kind of... Maybe the tipping point for Kira Knightley, I reckon. Yeah. Like, I reckon straight into this, she would have gone into like, like, Pirates of the Caribbean. Bend It Like Beckham was a bit before, I oh, think. Oh, that's such a good movie. So, like, this is, like, like the the beginning of Kira Knightley, and then um, the other two kind of found more success later what's on. The, what's the show that I'm thinking of? The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead, thank you. Yeah. The zombie one. Is that the what I one. said? Y- yeah. Yeah. I know what... <laughs> pop culture... I can have a pop culture feminist podcast. I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) So this storyline makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) I think because it's romanticizing infidelity to me. Um, I don't like it. The more I watch it, the more uncomfortable I feel about it. Um, because I think that if you're in love with your best friend's wife, you should keep it to yourself. <laughs> like, <laughs> be cool. I know. Like, but that's the that's the main vibe. That's the main feeling that I have towards this storyline. Ellis, do you want to flesh that out a little bit? <laughs> um. So the the storyline is um. Kira Knightley and Chiwetel Ejiofor have gotten married. They begin the film getting married. And Andrew Lincoln is... Uh, I should use the, the... Mark. Mark is Peter's best friend. And best man. Best man, like, all that. But he he doesn't get along with Juliet. Yeah. Doesn't get along with his wife. Really awkward and uncomfortable every time they they have to interact. He yeah. just, just doesn't come off well. Uh, turns out he's actually been in love with her the entire time and has been distancing himself. Yeah. Uh, he, he uses the phrase self-preservation. Yeah. Um, Which is a bit rich, <laughs> given how that storyline concludes. <laughs> because he then rocks up at their house uh, and probably the most famous scene from the yeah. movie, he holds up a bunch of cue cards expressing his love for Kira Knightley, um, for Juliet. That being said, I'm I'm maybe being a little bit too harsh because she finds out accidentally because he's been taken he took all this of this footage of 
their wedding and she her wedding video has mucked up and so she goes to him requesting the footage that he took so that she can see it and realizes that he only filmed her mm-hmm. um bit creepy <laughs> and then she connects the dots and goes oh mm-hmm. you're in love with me that's yeah. that's why you've been weird about me this whole time so i suppose in some way the fact that he then professes his love is slightly excused like just a little bit because she wouldn't if she hadn't found out he probably wouldn't have felt the need to explain himself mm-hmm. i guess from my perspective, when he confesses, I don't think he's confessing in an attempt to woo her from his friend. Mm. I think it's very much a, I need to admit this so that you're aware of how I'm feeling and that I've been honest with myself and to you. Um, and I think that... I don't think he goes there with any expectation. Mm. Um, And the thing that tips me towards that is I think the best part of the storyline where after he's confessed, uh, she, she gives him a very brief kiss and then returns to her husband. uh, And he just says enough. Mm. And in that moment, it's very clear that he's moving on. Yeah. And he's, he's got the closure. Yeah. He's done the thing. He's, he's been, he was honest with himself and he's going to move on and hopefully have a much better relationship with both of them now that he isn't harboring this secret and he can find yeah. somebody to, to, yeah. to love. I still think that there are ways that you can work through your unrequited love for your best friend's wife that doesn't actually implicate her. Therapy, probably? <laughs> yeah, like, Mark, <laughs> get some therapy. You'll be good. Depending on when I'm thinking about it is how creepy I think the action is. Because I think inherently all the actions that Mark takes are kind of creepy. Um, Like filming your best friend's wife while also being like kind of rude and mean to her the entire time. like he was never going to show her that. Mm. Like he was just going to keep this footage for himself. Like, that's creepy to, like, I just have this video of my best friend's wife looking super hot on her wedding day. Like, what were you going to use that for, sir? That's concerning. Ew. <laughs> that said, one of my favorite scenes is from this storyline, and it's the, it's the scene directly after he finds out, uh, she finds out that he's got mm. this video, and he's just, like, walking down the street, reacting, and a Dido song is playing. <laughs> I'm a singer. (laughs) But it's just, it's such a simple, short little scene of him reacting to that. And and since the first time I saw it, that's been one of my favorite moments of the entire film. Also one of the most iconic turtlenecks Mm. in that scene. A lot of good Um, turtlenecks in the Yeah. One of my favorite, like, things that happens at Christmas is BuzzFeed just does all of these articles about, like, the definitive ranking of turtlenecks (laughs) in love, actually. Some of my favorite internet content. Yeah. It's good shit. So I'm, I, from a feminist perspective, I don't think that this one holds up Mm. very well because, um, 
kind of there's not a lot of agency with regards to Kira Knightley, um, Juliet. Juliet. Um, I, I think it's it's very kind of Mark is like a little bit possessive and oversteps some boundaries and kind of like takes footage without her permission and and mm. and yeah it. it this is the story that holds up least under scrutiny. Mm. Also, I recognize what I said earlier about you have to suspend some of your disbelief when you're watching romantic comedies. Um, but the whole scene where he brings the the placards to her door, like so many things could have gone wrong there. Like he could have answered the door. They could have answered the door together. Like also the the music that he's playing where he's like tell him it's carol singers like it's the recording is too high quality like no one's gonna believe that some community group going around the streets like this is a professional choir and they've got freaking accompaniment like it doesn't sound like people just singing on the street (laughs) like a big plot hole big plot hole for me yeah Irrelevant to the feminist perspective, I just feel strongly about how much he shouldn't have, how much better he should have executed that plan. Mim, what's our next story? Oh, the next one is, oh, I freaking love this bit, um, is the story between Bill Nye, who is Billy Mack, the uh, expired rock star, and uh, the, the actor's name is Gregor Fisher. Um, who plays his manager? I think it's Fred. Sure. Joe. Joe is Joe. His manager. Yes, he, yes, it is. Um, and this is again in the rankings of what our personal favorite storylines are. Ellis and I had the same top two. The Hugh Grant storyline was number one, and this was our second favorite. Oh, it's so good! It's so good! It's the one that I personally quote the most in my everyday life, mm-hmm. particularly with uh, my dad. Like, like my whole family love this movie, but me and my dad quote it to each other just, like, constantly. And and this is is probably the, the biggest one that we quote to each other. It's mm-hmm. just... Um, yeah. it, essentially what it is is, is Billy Mack is a fa- faded rock star yeah. trying to make <laughs> the most hideous Christmas number one. <laughs> Christmas is all around instead of love is all around. Yeah. And um, oh, we all know the song is crap. <laughs> is that what the line is? Yeah, Have I quoted that correctly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's just uh, every now and again it cuts back to him on like press tours and radio interviews, <laughs> um, essentially like being very open with the fact that the song's rubbish and he just wants the Christmas number one, uh, while uh, while his uh, manager just kind of like looks on in horror. <laughs> At, <laughs> at, at what's going on. Um, but then it turns around where he, uh, Billy Mac gets the Christmas number one and, like, seemingly goes off to uh, a huge, raucous party leaving his manager At Elton behind. John's house. At Elton John's house. Of course. Where um, else? But then he leaves that, he leaves all the glamour, and he just goes to his manager's house and kind of confesses that actually the person that I love most of all after all this is you. Mm. And both of them get very teary and emotional at that. And, yeah. the, and, oh, and he utters the, the incredible line of, come on, let's get pissed and watch porn. 
Oh. And it's like only Bill Nye could pull that line off. And be endearing? Yeah. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> yeah. I guess like I think what really holds this storyline up for me is the fact that it's really obvious that Bill Nye's character, um, Billy Mac, is that what we decided his mm-hmm. name was, um, represents uh, like this really old school, quite misogynistic, quite um, like hyper masculine sense of manhood, right? Mm. Like, um, like he makes some like disparaging comments about women, like. Um, Best shag you've ever had. Britney Spears. Just kidding. She was rubbish. <laughs> um, maybe one of the best lines of the film. Um, and the fact that like his um, his film clip for this song is him and these like really scantily clad women in Christmas outfits, like mm. being hypersexual and like step tapping, um, <laughs> playing some instruments in the background. Like he, what he represents is um, a pretty like toxic masculine character Mm -hmm. and the fact that he can kind of overcome that to recognize that his friendship um with this other man is like a huge love in his life like he he says like the love of my life is you doesn't he um i think that's so redeeming knowing how far off the values that he has um, kind of lived his life with. Mm. Yeah, this, the stark contrast is, I think, what makes that moment so lovely. And, I, I, again, it's another one where where both actors sell mm. this scene. Like, you you can see it's, it's like two grown men who are, like, older from another era. They were re- very clearly raised differently to, yeah. to the way we are now. And they have no idea how to process their emotions or vocalize their emotions. And watching them both kind of struggle with that, but it's so clear. It's like, it's like I have to say this right now. I need to let you know how I feel about you and how much you matter to me is so like wonderful. And it's like, like regardless of how hard it is for either of them to, to vocalize it, mm. they, they, persist and they they get there and it's just it's such a wonderful moment yeah and like you can see how um like those antiquated values are still very much present in their life where he says that and his manager's like oh 15 minutes at elton's and you're gay now or something to that (laughs) effect um but 15 minutes at elton john's as you're as gay as a maypole Mm, (laughs) that one um so yeah, the, the the struggle to understand that like um, platonic love between two men is a beautiful, viable thing mm. is very clear, um, and the fact that they still get there and they um, can recognize how important one another has been in their lives is like really nice. It's it's so lovely and just really funny the entire way through. <laughs> Yeah, Bill Nye brings the laughs. Anything that he says is just really funny. Mm. Mm. What's our next storyline that we're going to talk about, Ellis? The next storyline is between Laura Linney and Carl, whose actor's name is Rodrigo Santoro, but let's face it, he is Carl, Mm. because uh, Laura Linney has been in love with Carl 
for two years, three, three months, months, two weeks, and I want to say one hour and 30 minutes. Something to that effect. Yeah. She, she's like been in love with him ever since she started working uh, for the company. Uh, and it turns out that he has feelings for her as well. But she's constantly getting phone calls from her brother, who is uh, mentally ill and in a, in a hospital. And she's the only one mm. left. They don't have parents anymore. Uh, she's the only one left to take care of him. And this is one of the few storylines that ends um, bittersweetly. Yeah. Because while she has an opportunity to be with Carl... Uh, she their night together is interrupted by the phone going off and she makes the decision, no, I need to answer this phone. Yeah. I need to be there for my brother. And they never really recover uh, yeah. the, the obvious attraction that they have to each other. They're unsure of how to go forward with that, uh, which, is, which is quite bittersweet, especially when it's happening to Laura Linney Aww. because, oh, I love her. And <laughs> yeah, I think that... Um... I really appreciate what this storyline represents, like the fact that um, she has a lot of agency mm-hmm. and she um, makes the choice that, you know, actually being there to support and care for my brother who is unwell is my priority. And, like, I've been in love with this man for a number of years and even still, um, like, that familial love is what um, is more important to her. And, like, it's mm. heartbreaking as all hell. Um, but the fact that she makes that decision and um, th- that's that's really significant. It's also... N- it doesn't appear to be much of a decision. Mm. Like, she, she, she only contemplates it for, like, a brief moment when she's like, no, I need to be there for my brother. Mm. Even though um, I think Carl's asks her is like will it actually help will it make him better yeah i think is the line and and even though she she doesn't think it'll fix everything she's like no i need to be there for him and it's really like it's simultaneously really lovely the relationship that she has with her brother and really upsetting that you know we, we want her to get together with carl we want her to have that happiness mm. and it's it's quite upsetting that, yeah. that she doesn't and I'm sure that there are a number of people who watch this who um, have, like, caring responsibilities in their life who really resonate mm. with this storyline um, and the sacrifices that, that you make to, to care for somebody uh, that you love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, just, like, one of, the, one of the solid one-liners that comes out of this is, um, no, I'm not sure we can get the Pope on the line tonight. Yes, I'm, I'm sure he's very good at exorcism. <laughs> like, what a line. Also, going back to Alan Rickman for a second, because the way that that storyline is connected with this one is that Alan Rickman is Laura Linney's boss. Yes. Um, can we talk about how inappropriate it is that he's like, is her name Sarah? Sarah, yeah. yeah. Like, come into my office for a second. Um, when are you going to tell Carl that you're in love with him? <laughs> like, like, professional boundaries, please, Alan Rickman. <laughs> I, like, I... You get you get the feeling that they are friends. Yeah, that it's not like just this... a a boss uh, employee dynamic. But yeah, there is that there is that power imbalance. Yeah. Again, like, could you have not said it over like work drinks? <laughs> like, did this have to happen in like a inter office meeting? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it also one of my favorite. 
bits of the entire movie is the moment where Laura Linney and Carl get to her house and they've just kissed and she's like can you give me just two seconds and she literally just goes around the corner and has like the most relatable excited (laughs) dance oh my god I can't believe this has happened to me um thing before returning and be like okay let's let's continue uh fun fact in my school of rock script there was a moment where we had to do a reaction like that behind uh, in in a scene, and I just wrote Laura Linney behind the couch <laughs> in my script, and I knew what that meant. Nobody else did. Yeah, look, it's the, you you were the only one that needed to know what that <laughs> meant. Yeah, um, and I think that also makes it all the more heartbreaking, um, and makes it obvious how much she loves her brother to um, give up that potential relationship with Carl that mm-hmm. she has been so excited about to go and like do her little happy dance about. Yeah, uh, it's so. A very, very relatable and very heartbreaking mm. story. Yeah. Ellis, tell us about this next storyline that we are going to dive into. Our next storyline is about Colin, uh, who's played by uh, Chris Marshall, is his name, and uh, tangentially his mate Tony, who's played by uh, Abdul Salis. Abdul Salis, that's his name. Um, <clears throat> Colin. Ah, Colin, god of sex. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Colin, uh, in the politest way possible, can't get a date. Um, (laughs) That's one way of putting it. uh, And makes the realisation, however faulty it may be, that Mm. the issue isn't him. Oh, absolutely not. He is not at fault in any way. It's British Mm. women. Of course. What he needs to do is go to America and find a laid-back American girl and then he can have all the sex he wants. And also, can we just talk about for a second, like, how creepy that he has been to these women who he perceives as rejecting him, in inverted commas. Like, mm-hmm. he goes up to this lovely catering lady um, and, like, completely puts his foot in his mouth about, like, how terrible her cooking is without realising it. Um, he, like, goes around the office and, like, makes these really creepy advances. Like, he gives me a, like a muffin or something. It's like, beautiful muffin for a beautiful lady. Like, he's... <laughs> Hello, my future wife. Oh, he's creepy. Like, he is. Like, Colin, it's you. It's it's entirely him. And the fact that... It's um, not British women. The entire, the entire time his mate Tony is just going, it's not the women, it's you. You're a creep. You're... <laughs> you're you you're the issue here. Yeah, thank you, Tony, for, like, being the voice of reason. <laughs> <laughs> but then... He um, he rents out his apartment, buys a ticket to America, fills a rucksack full of condoms. <laughs> like they don't have condoms in America? And like... he, he rocks up at a bar. He's like, gets in a taxi. when Take he gets to a bar. Any bar. And within seconds, he's like surrounded by three incredibly beautiful women who are fawning over his accent Mm. and go like oh if you don't have a place to stay tonight come stay with us the only issue is we only have one bed and no pajamas oh no also there's a fourth woman and he it comes true it's like (laughs) this is the ultimate male fantasy of the film where beyond this is where we have to suspend disbelief the most i think this is where my belief is most suspended. My disbelief, yeah. And and he um he comes back to 
the United Kingdom with a beautiful woman in tow and also one for his friend. And it's... (laughs) But I think... I think the reason that it is so funny is because it's unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Like, no one is sitting there going, that's real life. That's what would happen, Like, yes. I wonder how many British guys have watched this and been like, oh my God, it's British women. I just need to go to America. They'll all fawn over me. Right. Uh, this is quite clearly the least feminist of the stories. Yes. There's no agency given to any of the women. In fact, a lot of blame is put on yeah. all of the women tangentially involved yeah. in the story. I mean, I guess they're very um, forward about the fivesome that they're about <laughs> to have. Like, I guess the, the American women have a level of agency. True. Yeah, that's true. That's um, true. They are, they are slightly one-dimensional characters. They are. But... They're, uh, they're defining features of it. They're American and hot. <laughs> and and a, lot of the, a lot of the commentary from Colin about women is quite derogatory and, yeah. and uh, not uh, encompassing any facets of their personality other than that they can have sex with him. Yeah. And, like, it's a little bit disheartening to get to the end of the story and, and he is rewarded for his his attitudes. Yeah. But at the same time, it's it is... It's so funny, though. It's really funny. <laughs> Uh, as I said, th- this is probably um, the second most quoted section of the of the thing between me and my dad. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's got some very quotable lines for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> but also, I don't think I don't think anyone is going to watch this and be like, "That Colin, like, what an upstanding guy!" <laughs> like, everyone's going to be like, "You're a douche." Yeah. <laughs> But you're a hilarious douche. Yes. It's funny because he's so reprehensible, I think. It, it's so unbelievable, the events that transpire, that you can't help but laugh and enjoy yeah. it along with them. Yeah. Uh, what's our final story, Mim? I have a lot of good to say about this last storyline. It's the one that happens... The actors that play them are Martin Freeman and Joanna Page. And I think the characters' names are... Well, she's just Judy. And he's John. John. John and Judy. Bless them. Um, so this is the storyline where I think they're body doubles um, in a film. And they're yeah. like basically shooting the naked scenes. They're like body stand-ins. Um, and I think that this storyline is so wholesome. Um, because... Basically, what they have to do for their job is, like, strip down, get naked, and, like, dry hump each other, more or less. And where the humor comes in, and also where, like, the wholesomeness comes in, (laughs) is the fact that they're, like, really quite, um, like, socially awkward around one another, and they're quite, like, tentative, which is so cute, because they're just, like, stark naked, having this, like, sweet, awkward banal conversation about like oh traffic was murder today wasn't it (laughs) um so i think like that's sort of where the um yeah where the comedy comes out is through that juxtaposition um but i think that this storyline has a lot of feminist merit Mm. um and i say that because i think that the fact that 
Martin Freeman's character, John, makes absolutely no presumptions about Judy, despite the fact that all of their interactions more or less have been naked, is um, is fantastic. Like, the fact that I think it really debunks the whole idea that what you're wearing can translate into consent, which it absolutely doesn't. Mm. Um, like, there is no merit to the idea that, oh, because she was dressed in a provocative way or because she was undressed to any degree um, means that there is implicit consent. Like, that's not cool. Um, and I think that his character really, like, purposefully or not, really stands for that. Mm. Um, the fact that he makes no assumptions about how she feels about him or how um, or whether she, like, wants anything out of the relationship despite the fact that they have just been naked together this entire time. <laughs> and simulating quite explicit sexual acts as yeah. well. Yeah. Could you just um, massage the nipples? <laughs> yeah. Like... And then he like warms his hands up so it yeah. won't be too cold. It's, it's very, like, it's very wholesome and sweet. And, and the fact that there is this tentativeness, like even um, after he asks her out and they go on their first date, they're both very hesitant to have their first date kiss together yeah. because they, they, they don't want to they don't want to assume anything they don't want to overstep any boundaries yeah. and it's really really quite lovely and the fact that they get engaged after knowing each other for like a month or two is actually one of the more believable moments yeah yeah because it's like oh no you are really cute and and yeah like you seem to work well together and you get along really it's really lovely and, and wholesome yeah and like the fact that um they don't take anything from their professional life and be like oh well like i've seen you naked i've like touched you in xyz places like that doesn't um no presumptions are made about what is then acceptable in their personal life like Mm. that personal and professional boundary is really um is really strong and so i think that this storyline has a lot of feminist merit it's also just so cute it's really cute and like both the actors again they sell it really well like the cast across the board Mm. is really wonderful it's so well cast and and even even in the the more kind of ridiculous or hard to believe storylines, a lot of the the believability comes from the performers mm. just making it work. Yeah, like I think that's probably another reason why it's such a beloved film is that all of these mm-hmm. um, performances are really really strong. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's our nine. That's our yeah. nine Love Actually stories. Um, couple of other little talking points. Um, we did a little bit of a tally earlier of um the ratio of male to female characters um it's it's pretty binary um yeah so yeah like there's there's no queer representation in the film and um everyone is cis i'm pretty sure yeah um but yeah we did a tally of it and of those nine storylines that we just dissected they each kind of have like two max three like key characters and of those we did 21 characters because we also included Rowan Atkinson because he's an icon. <laughs> um, <laughs> he pops up from time. He pops up enough to to warrant. Yeah, he's character. also on the poster, but probably because he's Rowan Atkinson, you know. Yeah, that's true. Um, but of the 21 key cast members, 14 of them are men and seven of them are women. That's literally double mm. the male characters to like female. And a lot of uh, there are a couple of storylines that are specifically between the relationship uh, between two men, mm. or uh, 
a storyline involves two men and none of the storylines are about two women in any way shape or form no i think the closest we come is emma thompson and her daughter yeah and even then yeah not really yeah um which i think is probably um a result of it being written by a man Mm -hmm. um like i'm sure richard curtis is more comfortable writing for male characters than women Mm -hmm. um and I think I would struggle to find a moment in the movie where it passes the Bechdel test. Actually, just thinking about it, Emma Thompson and her daughter do talk about... the Being the lobster at the birth of Jesus. The first lobster. <laughs> the first lobster. There was more than one lobster <laughs> at the birth of Jesus. And I believe that... But does her daughter have a name? She does. What is it, Ellis? <laughs> I couldn't tell you any other character's name. Do you really expect me to know that offhand? Um, I'll, I'll have a look on Wikipedia because maybe. Yeah, but the happen. other the other scenes between women that I can think of are like the housekeeper and Natalie. Um, but what they talk about is the fact that Natalie has just like embarrassed herself in the first meeting with the prime minister. Mm. Um, the, there's not a lot. Also, um, there's a scene at the work party where um, Laura Linney is, like, comforting Emma Thompson when Alan Rickman is dancing with his assistant. But what they're talking about is, oh, I'm sure he's obliged to dance with everyone because he's the boss. So, like, they're talking about Alan Rickman. Yeah. It, it's not not a good... Uh... Not a good contender for passing the Bechdel test, even if it does. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, you can make the argument that every conversation had between any character is about love and romance in some way. Yeah. And And also, I don't think that there is a a female character in the movie who isn't a love interest. No. Like, I don't think any woman or girl has a story that isn't a a romantic one. Granted... Most of the storylines are romantic ones, but there are, like, for example, the, the Liam Neeson and his son relationship, which isn't, like, that's paternal love. Like, yeah. there's the, um, the love between um, Bill Nye, Bill and, Nye Joe. and Joe. Um, so while there are instances of love that isn't romantic, we don't see that with women. Oh, I suppose um, there is the friendship between... Emma Thompson's character and Liam Neeson. Yeah. Um, there's that, like, um, yeah, supportive, platonic love of her um, supporting him through the grief of his wife's passing. Mm. But but even then, she is then Alan Rickman's wife, and yeah. that's kind of the primary role that she plays yeah, in the film. exactly. Yeah. Um, in terms of um, representation of people of colour... Majority of the main cast are white, mm. um, but when I was watching the film, I was surprised at how multicultural the greater cast seemed to be. I'm comparing this to like some of the previous things that we've watched, where it's been like literally all white yeah. and then a single person like, of color, like Greece, for example. Uh, yeah, w- whereas uh, in this film, a lot of the the side characters are portrayed by people of color, which while giving the impression of a multicultural Britain, which is the case. Yeah, which is accurate. <laughs> um, uh, the fact that 
two of our 21 main characters are people of color yeah. um yeah. is is a bit of an issue yeah oh i um i would potentially argue that um Carl and um, Aurelia are um, oh yeah yeah Latin <laughs> Latino Latina, um, but even even still, it's it's, it's a minor- minority of of the the cast. Yeah. Um. Um. Final thoughts. I do think this movie is interesting because the more time goes on, I think the more people are critical of it. Mm-hmm. Um, like every Christmas, like two things are certain at Christmas. One is that BuzzFeed will release an article about the turtlenecks in Love Actually. <laughs> and two is that there'll be people being like, here are all of the things that are wrong with Love Actually. Um, and I think that a lot of the criticisms are valid. Um, something that we kind of touched on in the Hugh Grant storyline, but which is definitely rife throughout more storylines is that there is like a real fat phobic vibe. Mm. Um, like the fact that um, there are all these disparaging comments about Aurelia's sister, like being the fat one that's yeah. never going to find love. Um, I think there are more examples that I, that don't spring to mind immediately, but like there is a real fat phobic vibe throughout mm. it, um, which I think is a valid concern. Um, this movie is so loved and has like become a real staple um, in like film history, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this is probably going to be the first instance, Ellis, where you and I have taken something and can recognize its flaws from a feminist point of view, mm-hmm. um, but still really love something just at face value it's a very flawed film and whenever all those buzzfeed articles come out saying here are all the ways they're wrong with it i read them and i go these are all objectively correct i agree (laughs) however (laughs) uh this film holds a very dear place Mm. in my heart even with all its faults yeah ellis are we gonna rate or ruin love actually if we uh, I think we, I mean we kind of broke down each story and we, we kind of implied whether we rated or, or didn't each story mm. uh, I think on the whole I'm I don't think it's a particularly feminist film no. even if you have a couple of storylines that are really really wonderful like mm. um, like the Martin Freeman storyline yeah. or or the, the, the Liam Neeson storyline are really really great examples of positive masculinity yeah uh but i don't think the film is at all concerned with feminist feminism or or, mm. or feminist takes yeah uh it's like a lot of the 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 positive feministness that comes <laughs> from the film uh has to relate with men and how men yeah. relate to other men and i think that i, I just don't think it's con- at all worried yeah i think um you're right there are some storylines that really hold up from a feminist point of view or like um that portray ideals which are really aligned with the feminist cause um i 
don't necessarily think that that was intentional. Mm. Um, but that's sort of the way that that they um, that they flow when you give it that um, look at it with that lens. Um, but when you think about the men to women ratio of the core cast, um, how um, all of the women are romantic like love interests, mm. how there is this it is very white and it's um, very heteronormative and it's very like there there are these like fat phobic elements as well. I think that it probably just swings in the direction of it not necessarily being a feminist work. Mm-hmm. I don't want to ruin it though. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is a good example of like uh, we are able to acknowledge the issues that this film has and and raises in the discussion. But we have to admit that we love this film. Yeah. And it's it, it's in a lot of ways an important film to us personally. Yeah. And that's okay that as as long as we can recognize and acknowledge mm. uh, that these issues are here, I I think that's okay that we're able to yeah. enjoy the film. And mm. that being said like both you and I, Ellis, are like white and straight, mm-hmm. and like we easily see ourselves represented in this movie. Yeah. Whereas um, somebody who is queer, or someone who's a person of color, or um, someone with a disability, um, doesn't see themselves portrayed in this film. And um, I, I think that it's probably due to our privilege that we can actually enjoy it yeah. to some degree. So please, uh, out there, let us know how you feel about Love Actually. Um, let us know what story is your favourite. Mm. Um, we'll we'll post our um, our rankings. Our rankings, yeah. <laughs> but both both our favourites and our what we think the most feminist ones are. Um, uh, if they want to get in touch with us, how yeah. are they able to do that? Um, you can send us a message on Instagram or on Facebook. Uh, we've got two pages set up. Um, our handle on Instagram is at Feminism Ruins Everything Pod. And on Facebook, we are Feminism Ruins Everything colon a feminist podcast. Send us a message or like comment on one of our posts. Um, we would love to hear what you think about this film. And uh, if you're listening to us on iTunes, if you could give us a rating yeah. and leave a comment and just let us know if you enjoyed the episode, if you enjoyed the discourse. Um, I'm not sure how Spotify podcast works, but if you can rate us on that, please I do. I don't think you can. I don't think so. But as somebody that uses Spotify podcasts myself, I will like listen to something on Spotify podcasts, but then I'll still go onto the Apple podcast and like give something a rating that I like, <laughs> even if I don't listen to it there. Um, so that could be you. <laughs> It's really easy to rate stuff on Apple Podcasts. So if you'd like to do that, you're welcome to. And I think that's, uh, that's it for our discussion on Love Actually. We thought that we'd keep it very seasonal and talk about a Christmas movie in May. In May, absolutely. That's when, that's when you should talk about Christmas Merry movies. Christmas. Ah. But also, like, this podcast is going to be online for a really long time. So you might be listening in December, in which case, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy whatever festivity you celebrate. If you do happen to listen to this podcast on Christmas, please let us know. I think that would be hilarious. (laughs) Um, Happy listening, guys. Thanks for coming along for the ride with us. We are Feminism Ruins Everything. See you next week. Love Actually is all around. Take care. (laughs) 
Feminist Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.